I know what you're going to say. You haven't been right once. You have voices. I have other things. Because I believe we are alike. But this is a very fresh approach. And I'm not here to tell you about Jesus. You already know about Jesus. Either he lives in your heart or he doesn't. It is a masterpiece of some kind. We all wish we were from someplace else. Believe me. You make the lie. I hate to break it to you, but there is no big lie. The universe is indifferent. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We gear our conversations about the show around the conversation the show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and, you know, maybe having a drink or two with a, a buddy. Maybe it turns into something else. Let me introduce our crew here. First of all, I'm John Agroni. You know me. But over here, well, <laughs> uh, Will Ashton, stop digging holes. It's time to podcast. Hey, what's up? And uh, of course, we have to, we're, we're going to get high and listen to Mike Overholes. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. I take a club to the jaw like everybody else. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about the Hobo Code. This is episode eight of season one of Mad Men. And we've been doing this a while. You know, we're you know eight episodes in. How are you guys feeling about the uh, the first season so far? Can we do a little bit of a check-in? Uh, Will Ashton, you're fresher to the show than we are, but you have seen this episode once before, many years ago. Mm. What's going on in your head right now? I think it's a good season. I mean, I don't know uh, if I have anything extra to say at the moment before we get into the episode, but I'm digging it, and I'm excited for what's in store. I was wondering if we should do, like, power rankings or something, you know? Like, every episode we do just keep, like, I think... We, somebody might have even suggested this at one point and I'm like failing to credit them, but we could just, you know, be like, all right, where does this land on the first season? And then end the first season being like, here's everything. And then as we go through the whole show, we can keep track of our favorites. I mean, I think it would be just better to do a ranking of each episode at the end of a season as opposed to I, doing a power ranking. I agree with what I said earlier. We'll do it as we go. So, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, oh, and by the way, this episode came out September 6, 2007. Uh, Mike, how are you feeling? I think I pumped it a lot in, in the last episode, but Hobo mm-hmm. Code is literally like, I think the episode of Mad Men that made me really love Mad Men. This is. You mentioned that like earlier in our podcasting. Yeah. I think you mentioned in like the second episode. This was like one of your faves. I think this is one of the first episodes where like you start really getting what I would refer to as like payoffs of like, you know, the you know first couple episodes, they're building a show, building a culture, and then they're building characters. And like getting a, 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 the firsthand look at Dick Whitman, bringing Midge back and starting to see Don's relationship with her, getting to see all everything that's happening with Peggy. I think this is when the when the show really found its footing, and you're like, okay, this is what it is, and it's going to be fucking sick. I think it's yeah, it's it's when Matthew Weiner and the crew, uh, in this case Chris Provenzano, uh, writes the script and Phil Abraham directs. And it's like they've kind of they've, they have these characters that they've been sketching out, that they've been putting and setting up and showing us some like slices of their lives. This is where the deconstruction begins. It's where their character change begins. It's almost like, you know, this is 1960. We're setting up the decade. Now we're sort of seeing we're sort of seeing like, OK, this is 1960. This is where all the dominoes are going to fall over the course of the entire show. I think this is a good episode to mark in that sense. Like this is where we start to break from the status quo in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. Um, but what do you think? I mean, Will, from your perspective, because I mean, you yeah. know, 
again, you're not as fresh on this, so you probably don't have that big picture view of it. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like this is kind of where... I mean, I think the show has been smart about kind of balancing the wish fulfillment with the, like, themes and how it kind of balances, like, you know, the 50s aren't, or in this case, I guess the early 60s aren't quite what people idealize them to be. And there is obviously a lot of prejudice, a lot of uh, animosity, just a lot of just bad stuff happening. But there is like a class, there is a a way about that can be a little bit nostalgic and romanticized. And this episode, I feel, breaks down that a bit more by focusing more on the characters who are on the outside, whether it be because of race or gender or in the case of Dawn slash Dick. Uh, because of uh, social class and their upbringing and how they have like a kind of chip on their shoulder about, you know, how they uh, were never quite in the social class that they would like to be. It's uh, yeah. And it's just, uh, I feel like this is where we really kind of get the fully rounded show coming even more into fruition than we have already. I do like what you said, John, about how it's setting up the decade. Um, as, especially as we keep going, like I think they do, it especially with all the the Nixon JFK things, um, especially a couple episodes down the line. But it's absolutely true that they're really hitting on the themes in this episode of, of where it's going to go for the characters in the unraveling, uh, and not to you know steal your lead in, but the opening of, of the episode I think is just like I think the best first ten minutes of Mad Men so far, like thus far. Really? Yes. That I don't agree with that. But um, before before we talk about the opening, a quick reminder to people listening and being like, you know, you guys, you sound smart, you know, against all odds and what I know about you previously. Um, if you want to get a head up on what we're going to talk about, we do recommend that you pick up a copy of Mad Men Carousel, the critical, the complete critical companion to the show. It's by Mad Zoller Sites. Um, it is something that we've been referencing um, together. We'll just flash his copy from the library. Uh, definitely worth a checkout. You know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, watch the show along with us or continue to do so, that's a fun resource as well because it has even more insight than even you know that we're getting into. So, and for not yes, and for all you groupies out there, if you just at John Negroni and ask him, he'll just buy it for you. Just mention him on Twitter; <laughs> he'll do it for sure. We got to do well. We have a giveaway we're going to do because we have extra copies. Only well, for Negroupies. Uh, I'm really just trying to coin the term Negroupies. You just have to keep saying it. Negroupies. Yeah, your nickname tm i don't think uh i don't think mike was here when we announced that we had extra copies to give away i definitely was not expect uh, i was actually caught a little off guard last week when i came back and you guys started referencing this book <laughs> i've never fucking heard of but i just pretended to, i literally googled yeah, yeah. it while on mute while you guys were talking about it yeah mike what's your favorite part of the book <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's like a book club that he just like didn't know he was assigned <laughs> it literally was like hearing about friends who were hanging out together and you weren't invited yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost like it. uh it's almost like you are in the office with uh burt cooper and you haven't read mm-hmm. atlas shrugged that's right that's right out of your own rational self-interest no less mm. so the home or the hobo co- i can't i can't talk the hobo code it's the like hobo- i wanted to say the just, home club no you almost <laughs> let's be honest you literally almost just said the hobo cock no, that'd be funny <laughs> <laughs> oh man but speaking of we get to peg never mind yeah, so so the 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 episode opens with uh, Pete and uh, Peggy, the double P's. They they're at Sterling Cooper a lot earlier than you know you would expect. Uh, it's like seven a.m. and Pete Campbell is there. It's implied because he's unhappy at home 
and he just wants to be at work. He just doesn't want to be around his wife. Uh, he's a newlywed, but he is clearly having a lot of issues, which I think we're going to get into. And I want to probe you two about what do you think? What do you think is going on with Pete? And what do you think is the root of his dissatisfaction with his marriage with Trudy? Because we've seen Trudy um, a bit at this point over the course of the season, and she seems great. So it's just one of those things where we kind of we'll have to dig a little bit deeper to see what what the showrunners are you know after uh, when it comes to him. But Peggy's in the elevator with him with Hollis. The doors are about to close, and uh, uh, the service elevator is out. So Hollis uh, asks him if it's all right if a black janitor can ride with them. Uh, Pete looks a little annoyed about it, but Peggy's like, yeah, sure. You know, they don't even say anything. They're just sort of like, you know, it, it barely registers, right? right? And it should um, be noted that yeah. this time it seems to be actually broken down. Like last time it was because Don yeah. told him like, you know, he paid him off. But this time it does seem to be actually broken down, which is a, right, a little right. funny, uh, you know, kind of play on last week's episode. Especially, yeah, since those two things like follow each other like right after when you're watching the show uh, chronologically. Um, so this is kind of a setup for something that's about to happen. Basically, they're both in the office. Peggy, I forget why she's supposed to be there. Um, a little bit earlier, why she's there, maybe because she's not working on copy anymore for Belle Jolie. So well, maybe. I mean, I mean, if she is a secretary, does she have to be there earlier? Then No, because the other secretaries aren't there. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. Is she stalking Pete Campbell? I don't know. I maybe maybe I just believe too much. In be- I took I, not Betty. Whoops, Peggy. I just took it as a character development of her just really liking her job or wanting to climb the ladder at her job. And so she's willing to put in the extra effort and be there early. That's the only uh, thing eager. that can, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a little eager, you know, eager. Beaver, um, and yeah. it, it's, it's good. Cause she gets off work at three. So <laughs> that sure. works, but she um, got okay, off so- early. That was, that was a joke <laughs> I was going to make. And you beat me to it, Mike. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, so yeah, that's what happens. Basically she goes to Pete's office. is like, Hey, you want a coffee? And he's like, no, but you want something. Don't you? Um, tells her to shut the door. Um, she says, uh, Oh, no one's here. And, uh, it's interesting. Will because, you know, Matt Zeller cites is, uh, in Mad Men carousel kind of says, is like, Oh, cause she doesn't think the janitor is anybody. But my thinking was that the janitor wasn't there yet. Um, sure. and I don't know if I was yeah. reading it cause the janitor was like a floor below. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't get that from Peggy that she was kind of just being like, Oh, no one's here. You know, like, like the janitor didn't mean anything. I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of wondering that, too, though. I was also going to bring up something that I didn't realize until I read uh, Matt's book, which is that the first line that Peggy has in this episode is hold the door when as far as like the elevator is concerned. Hold the door, kind of, you mean? Yeah, sure. Whatever. I don't well, I don't watch Game of Thrones. Um, but you knew what that meant. Wow. I really thought you were setting up a Game of Thrones joke. You weren't. Are you serious? You just said hold the door without any implications of Game of Thrones. No, I mean that's what that's her first line is like hold the door, please. Like it's yeah, Will the, being he's taking this seriously, basically. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, I'll double yeah. check to make sure that's the line, but I don't. No, that's yeah, the line. That's the line. That. I'm, I'm more surprised that that is a coincidence to Game of. Th- I'm just I'm baffled. Sure. Yeah, I don't. I didn't watch the episode of Game of Thrones, and I will never do so. Uh, you watched the first season. You I liar. did, and that was a bit of a waste of time, I think. But a okay. dishonest like man the- podcast here. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, she holds the door and then, like you said, um, later on, Pete tells her to close the door and then there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff with doors here. I mean, you know, later on, like she gets like invited into the door. I don't know. just like, I just think that's an interesting thing with all the doors. Yeah, and what is this stuff. monsters Inc? Sure. Um, but yeah, so, so Pete, uh, puts the moves on Peggy 
and they have sex. Uh, it's kind of like rough at first. He rips her blouse, um, you know, kind of like almost like he's marking her, you know. Um, and, and that is something like we, we see that pitch later. And I just want to introduce the idea of like the idea of like marking your man and what that means or how that connects to total ownership. And I think it's clear to see Pete's arc in this episode is that he wants that. He wants total ownership of Peggy. He wants to mark her. And what's brilliant about Peggy's pitch and why it sort of like wrinkles the executive's feathers, the older stodgy guy, is because she's talking about like a woman can do that. A woman can, you know, make a claim like that. And that can kind of come off as like in the 1960s is like, what? You know, like women just, you know, they want to be one of a hundred colors in a box, don't they? That's what people say. Um, so yeah, sex scene. Um, the silhouette over the the window is quite suggestive. And then the janitor walks by and kind of just like looks and no real expression. What, what do we make of that? Uh, I... I don't know. I kind of push back bits. I know that that's something Matt Zolers I said as well. I feel like the expression is kind of quizzical, like kind of like you know, like he's not really going to say anything about it, but he is kind of just like, well, you don't see that every day. Like, uh, I mean, I think it's a little bit. I don't I think, think it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of indifferent, isn't it? I think that's a little bit. Means. Yeah, I mean, it's more just kind of like same shit, different day. Kind of feel like you know, like well, something I got to deal with while I clean up the floors. Uh, you know, it's just kind of. Yeah, I guess indifferent works, but I don't know. I, I feel it's not like completely blank. I do think it's a confirmation, though, of the comment of no one's here because it's no one's here. And then it's a blank face of indifference and uncaring because it do, like it doesn't even matter for him to then have an opinion or say anything about it. Because what's it going to do? It's just going to get him into trouble. A bunch of right. white people in their office fucking like whatever. I got other shit to worry about right now. They don't even... <laughs> expect him to say anything i guess it's yeah that kind of adds to the idea too but here's i know you push back john here's why i love this start to the episode because touching on what i was saying earlier about like this is where you start getting like character development yeah peggy and pete they fucked once but that was you know ending the episode it was early but it's just like it just starts the episode of like boom here we are and there's, it's not just that it's a sex scene. It says so much, especially about Pete. I know you're asking what we, what we think about Pete, but with everything that's been happening to him and everything that's been set up for his character, for them this to be the start of the episode, again, it's just now the show takes off running and we can really start to develop and have these opinions and see clearly where I think Pete is, is headed. Yeah, I, we have that moment too where Pete is sort of like, oh, by the way, you know, like right after they have intercourse, He's like, oh, yeah, and I never read your Belle Jolie thing. Um, clearly didn't seem to care. Like in the elevator, it gets brought up, too, where he's just sort of like a thing like that. You know, that's kind of his go to catchphrase for when he's jealous, I guess, um, because he wants to be a writer and he doesn't, you know, he's he's just not a very honest person. And so it's like one of those things where he he sees that, like, Peggy has talent and it kind of like, you know, it, it makes sense why he would try to dominate her and try to have sex with her in that moment. I think like people misread it as like, he's horny. There's so much, there's a way deeper psychological thing going on there. I want to get back to that once we revisit more of their arc. We'll move on quick here to the next thing. We're in the switchboard. You thought the show forgot about the switchboard. <laughs> um, it is kind of amazing how like, they did seem to be like a bigger deal at the beginning of the show. Uh, barely ever referenced again. This is only, I think, the third time we've seen um, either of those characters. Uh, one of them played by uh, Flo. 
Uh, but we have the newest new girl, Sterling Cooper, uh, mm-hmm. Lois Sadler, which I know for you, Will, was uh, uh, great. You were, you were very happy to see this, uh, this guest star come on well, to the show, Krista Flanagan. Yeah, Krista Flanagan. I don't know. I mean, did you guys not watch Mad TV growing up? No. So I, mm. yeah, see, I was boring. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it's not that surprising, I guess. I mean, it, it was, you know, not like an incredibly popular show, but it was popular. It gave us uh, Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele, you know, Ike Barinholt, uh, Michael McDonald, you know, some people of, of some fame nowadays. When, I, when but, I think of Matt TV, I literally only think of the mom from Family Guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Alexis Blendell, too. Yeah. Uh, also from you Marvelous Mrs. Basil. Also, Alexis a- Blendell is Gilmore Girls. Are you talking about Alex Borstein? Oh, it sorry, is Alex Borstein. Yeah. No, my Jesus bad, my Christ. bad. And then isn't there the uh, guy that does all Frank Caliendo? Okay, I, I digress. We don't need to talk about that. Oh, Matt yeah. TV. Who could forget Frank Caliendo of Frank TV, a show? Oh, uh, I mean, I I could. You guys, How much you guys want to talk about Frank TV? Talk Zero. about a madman. Sure. <laughs> I honestly. I'm I think like the whole Matt TV connection and everything. Lois is a great character um, because I think the comedy yeah. of this of her is really great. <laughs> I She's hilarious. And I think that like she has like a it's not just this episode, too, but like it, it's very cringy. But like there's this moment in this episode where somebody's just like, you can't just put your name on things like haven't you heard of Joseph McCarthy? She's like, it's the bowling team. <laughs> And it cracks me up. Great every line, time. yeah. That's a great line. Yeah. The delivery is like ninety percent mm. of the line. Of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, she's Lois is infatuated, infatuated with Salvatore Romano, the art director, the closeted homosexual. This is the episode where it becomes more explicit that he is gay, even though the point of his character is that we are supposed to know or understand that he's gay, even though the world around him doesn't. Um, she overhears a conversation with his mom. And she's like, well, I got a hit on him. So when Joan comes by, she gets more information about Sal and then kind of wants to maybe set up a, uh, a rendezvous with Sal later. There's also this quick moment where Joan um, asks that something, basically something to do with Mona uh, puts a call straight to her, which I read that Roger Sterling, John Slattery, was supposed to be in this episode, but they had to cut him out because he was on Desperate Housewives and there was something going on, like a conflict. And so this made me wonder if there was another subplot here involving Joan and Mona and Roger that they cut out because it was just it felt kind of random, I thought. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. It, it, I, I read that, too. He was doing a stint on Desperate Housewives, which why would you, you know, it makes sense. Why would mm-hmm. you be worried about the, the show? that you're on when you could be on the hottest television show of 2007. True it was a very popular show. I don't know if you're being sarcastic, but it was very popular. I know. I mean, that, I, I think maybe I was being sarcastic in my voice, but I am being 100% serious. Like I, <laughs> yeah, okay. my mom loved the shit out of that show. And if my mom was a show, so you know, it's popular. Yeah. My mom, uh, she loved that show. And then she moved on to this is us. And now I don't know what she's going to watch. What, what TV shows does your mom watch? Just Sean? get your mom to watch mad men. So then she can listen to a podcast uh, right after every episode. I'm not going to let my mom listen to this if I can help it. But uh, you didn't answer my question. You dodged my question here. What is my mom watching right now? No, no. I was asking John what does what his mom watch. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to ask her. She likes all kinds of things. We talked okay. about, you know, I think one of, the, one of the things we watched most recently was uh, Mayor of Easttown. She loved. Okay, cool. Yeah. I forgot about that. My show. mom is the one who introduced me to like movies and TV shows. So she actually yeah. she has pretty good taste. Nice. Um, so anyway. We finally have a scene with Don. Uh, Don comes in, and this is our first scene with him. This is a shot that echoes, or it mirrors, uh, the ending of the episode. 
Uh, he goes over to his office. The shot starts with uh, a shot of his back, uh, which is important for later. And he goes to Peggy, finds out that Cooper is waiting for him in his office, and Roger is not there. So this is a, just a meeting between him and Cooper, which raises some alarm bells. You have to wonder, like, what's going through Don's head? He's like, am I about to, like, get Pete Campbell right now? Because um, uh, that is very unusual. He usually, like, he, his buddy Roger, you know, they're Batman and Robin. He's got a, you know, it's like if Robin was, like, summoned by the commissioner. It's like, what, what's, what's about to happen to me? Um, but yeah, he goes to Cooper's office, and everything's great. Uh, Robert Morris comes in, gives an amazing line, uh, rest in peace. Uh, but basically, he gives on a check for $2,500. Basically, there seem to be two dual motivations here. One of them is to make Don happy because, you know, he certainly is appreciative of a lot of the stuff that Don has been doing this season, Bethel, from Bethlehem Steel to the lucky strike pitch. This is a bonus. Uh, $2,500 back then must have been like $20,000, $25,000, however 22. much. Um, $22,000 in uh, 1960. So it's a lot of money. It's a very big bonus. And there's, there's a moment where Cooper looks at Don and is basically like, we are, I believe we are alike. You are a productive and reasonable man. And in the end, completely self-interested. And th there's a moment that I've, I've kind of struggled with this scene because Don looks visibly uncomfortable about this. Uh, immediately, Bird is like, have you read her? You know, he's talking about Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, uh, which is uh, the objectivist philosophy, this idea that, you know, people need to, like, be exceptional and nobody should limit them. And, you know, basically being disaffected is the right way to be. And Bert kind of looks at Don like that as somebody who's ultimately very selfish, but that's a good thing. And that's what's going to make him be successful in life. I have a theory about this, but, well, I got to wonder. Hmm. Well, what was your takeaway from this scene? It's very cryptic. Um, I mean, I was disappointed that Bert was a, a Rand stan. I have to admit. It's not too surprising, right? I'm not saying it's unsurprising. I'm just disappointed. Sure, I have, sure. I've actually never read Atlas Shrugged, but I've just, you know, like it you sucks. said, from Fountainhead is better, um, okay. but it's also still gross and icky, but it certainly mm -hmm. is a good work. And, sure. and it's, you know, objectively. Be, sure. <laughs> Bad philosophy, good writing. Yeah, uh, Mike, I guess, is also not a fan. So uh, three thumbs down for uh, Anne My Rand. My thing for Atlas Shrugged is people shouldn't read the book. They should play Bioshock. Oh, get the gist. I mean, I saw the movie or two of the movies for Atlas Shrugged, and both of them were not good. Not, yeah, they're both very boring films. Um, but Teller was in one of them, which is bizarre. Uh, yeah, so, but anyway... No, I mean, I, I think it, it it does sum up uh, Bert's character well, or he just he, he does have a very objectivist point of view when it comes to people. You know, even like when he has a little, uh, what do you call it? Little like fern hedge. Um, that he's Bonsai stepping. trees? Yeah, palm, yeah, that exactly. Uh, yeah, he's like, I don't, he's kind of like, I think he just doesn't really have a clear perspective on people. You know, being an advertisement as long as he has, it just seems like he's, you know, like he says, he's, he thinks that he's basically figured out humanity by age 40. Yeah. And that he's kind of like pegged people to uh, different archetypes and different uh, ways of life. He doesn't, he doesn't really uh, account for like differences and complexities. He's kind of puts people in boxes and he's putting uh, Don in a box, which he doesn't feel very comfortable with. Exactly. Because that's Don's personality, right? He doesn't want to be one of a hundred colors in a box. Sorry, I had to. I, I took it as... I. I thought Don was uncomfortable because, wow, 
Well, I have a completely opposite opinion. I thought I maybe you guys got this from your super smart book club book that tells you what to think about the show. But <laughs> uh, no, I did not. I don't think the yeah, book really gets yeah, into say, detail. But it doesn't really talk about this. Yeah, I took Don's uncomfortableness literally as the fact, like a he was pegged that he is a self interested man. But Don doesn't want people to know he is self interested. No, that's what that, we're saying. That, no, you're saying that he. Wait, is that what you're saying? Yeah. No. So okay. Let me let me re, let me restate. We got too caught up with that. What I'm truck. saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to speak for Will, but what I'm saying is that Don puts on a mask. He puts on like a shell to pretend to be somebody, and the fact that Bert sees through that and is able to see who he is, like who he actually is, and to see that indifference freaks him out because he mm-hmm. actually doesn't want anybody to see that like that's the whole point to his character so we're, we're saying the same thing yeah that's, i heard i heard will say something different okay maybe i don't know well oh. i mean i was i don't think so i mean he maybe we're just kind of speaking around it a bit but like i think don not only does he have a fear of being caught i guess but i think he also has a fear of being kind of assumed one position or another maybe that's where mike is disagreeing is that like like we said like he doesn't want to be uh like a hundred like one of a hundred different lipsticks in a box like i think he kind of wants to be on the outside you know like when he goes later in the episode and kind of hangs out with uh, the hippie hipster crowd like i think he kind of likes to be one of two things or one of many things like he 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 has that kind of like you know straight lace persona but he also likes to fit in with people on the outside and i think he doesn't like to assume one identity or another I think that kind of comes into his fear of the suburban life. He doesn't really like to assume that he fits into there, but he also doesn't really like spending time at work all that much outside of, you know, like he doesn't really feel comfortable in any one particular place. And I think that something that, uh, also recognizes. Yeah. Turns out completely agree with you. I don't know if I just was still thinking about Peggy, Peg and Pete, but, uh, I heard you say something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Men only think of one thing, Peggy and Pete's sex life. Gross. Um, so then we cut to Lois. Uh, she's heading over to the art department, clearly trying to flirt with Sal. Um, she kind of makes this remark where she's just like, I work out of a closet all day. And, I, you know, you can almost see Sal just be like, <laughs> I know this little bit about closets. closets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she, she's just sort of like, I need directions, you know, trying to sort of like start something. She does the thing where she's like, ciao, ciao. Was that, you know? was that a saying even back in the day back then, like being in the closet? When did that become predominant? Is that a joke just for us? It could be an, a purposeful like anachronism, like because it, it is kind of subtle. It's not like she's saying like, I'm stuck in the closet. Like, I think if it had been gone that far, it would have been a little bit like, all right, Provenzano, calm down. I think Will's looking it up. We'll let him do his routine fact check. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we next go over. Oh, and I do, I do have to mention like Sal's brilliant moment. She's like, you don't need, you know, you don't need money to dress better than you do, Dwayne. <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I, uh, I'm sorry. I think that's just uh, the, the perfect amount of Sal sass that I like. According to something called the Journal of Ethics, this idea of privacy led to the sense of hiding a fact or keeping something a secret, which goes right back to the beginning of the 17th century. Okay, so we, you know, we're we're hundreds of years um, ahead of schedule there. Um, so next we go to Pete, who's drinking in his office because he's miserable as always. And Trudy kind of like barges into his office and he's just like, 
what are you doing? This is my office. Like, it has a bit of a temper tantrum. And she's just like, I just wanted to celebrate. Like we just bought a house. Like what the heck? Like, she's just like, what are you doing? Like we're married and we're mm-hmm. hot. Like I, you can just see like Trudy's just like, what's the problem? Like uh, I get this sense yeah. where she's just like, what's wrong mm-hmm. with this guy? But she's trying so hard to just sort of like bury it so that things can be happy on the surface. I mean, I think it is kind of interesting to see the, the flip where like Peggy gets invited into the room, even though she doesn't feel welcomed. Whereas Trudy feels like she is entitled to come into the room when she isn't right. welcome. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the root of what attracts Pete to Peggy. He mm-hmm. wants to dominate her. He can't dominate Trudy because Trudy is his equal. Like the, that's the whole idea behind, I think like the, what makes this a good episode, I think is how we constantly see the underclass in this episode, the hobo, the, the black janitor, we have right. like women are seen as an underclass as secretaries, and there is like a spectrum of power dynamic. And then in this case, we see that the root of Pete's misery is that he's married to this person. He calls her a stranger because to him, he was always, he always believed that he would have power. He would have dominance over women. It's, it's what's setting up the decade shift in uh, sexism mm-hmm. and gender politics and how that slowly kind of gradually changes. And he sees Peggy as that person. Hence, he tries to mark her. Whereas with Trudy, he can't control her. Like we saw in the last episode, he got chipped and dipped. Yeah. Does he? No, I mean, I think that's. Yeah, sorry, good. No, well, all you, buddy. No, I was just going to say, I mean, like this kind of gets to like the, the thrust of the episode, which is, you know, outsi- <laughs> outsiders looking <laughs> thrust, in huh? and. Sure. Yeah, there you go. Uh, outsiders looking in and marking people like with the hobo code, you know, like they, you know, kind of mark people as they see them in their way, kind of presuming or, you know, knowing what people are like from an objective perspective. It kind of is at the root of this whole dang episode. So, and Mike, you were going to say something probably very profound, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if we need to go there. I was going to say, you know, you're, you're talking about how Pete wants to control women. I'm not convinced that Pete wants to control women. I think as of right now, I am of the stance, especially as the show is portraying him, that Pete is a little bit uh, ahead of his time. He would be okay not controlling women, but his whole life, his whole upbringing, and everything in society is telling that he has to. And so it's his... Well, it's the hunter's fantasy, right? Exactly. Um, And... You know, I think, you know, if Pete was a modern man, he'd be totally okay. He might even stay home, let Trudy do whatever Trudy wants to do. But I think that's what makes Pete such an interesting character. Yeah, we're all Pete Campbell. But okay. So there's this whole, that whole scene happens. And, you know, he's clearly just sort of like trying to be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And just try to like bury it. We next go to the Belgically Mark Your Man pitch. And uh, I'm trying to remember when was the last time we had like a big pitch in the show. I, d- I don't think we had one in Babylon. I don't remember five G. Uh, Bethlehem Steel was it? The Bethlehem Steel was the first pitch? one I thought of. I don't know if there's been one since then. Because uh, right in the face, we didn't have a pitch. We just they just mm-hmm. met with the Nixon guys. Did we talk about how Bethlehem they had the Steel meeting and then there was a whole Bethlehem thing in the episode two after that? Yeah, yeah, the Babylon. That. We didn't, ma- yeah, we didn't yeah. make the connection. Sorry, but, well, yeah. then, and uh, from Babylon, then we went to, of course, the uh, this episode, which has a lot of religious undertones. So, as as I was actually going to mention too, um, you know, at first, you know, they do, they do this whole thing where it's just like uh, Belgian lipsticks, you know, mark your man. They quote like things that Peggy has said earlier in the show, and like her copy clearly is working on the, the younger executive, the more progressive executive, but the older one is just sort of like, 
this isn't how we do things. See, like he's very, you know, like we have all these shades of lipstick. Women, the, women want this. Women want that. And so Don kind of like does this. He does something that kind of um, gets remembered a lot as a, like a classic Don pitch where he tries to be like, all right, well, then the meeting's over. And so he kind of like strong arms the executive and to be like, wait, what? You're not going to try? And he's just like, why would I? You don't believe in Jesus, essentially, is what he's saying. But okay, what is he actually saying with the whole Jesus stuff? Uh, who, has, who has a theory about this? Anybody? Who, who, which of you has Jesus in their heart? Neither? Okay. What do you mean by a theory? I don't. In this case. A read. I'm like, what do you think Don... Why do you think Don is invoking Jesus in this scene? Um, I, I don't know exactly, but I just feel like he's kind of just like attacking their kind of prejudice view on women then i feel like that might be at the root of their their prejudiced views but i don't exactly know for sure that if that's the case yeah because i mean we'll connect that to like his quote essentially is like you know i'm not going to get you to believe in jesus he either lives in your heart or he doesn't um my my thing with this is that well i think i think it's savviness on don's part because he can read this guy he reads the mask that this guy puts up um, to kind of bring it back to one of the central themes. And he sees that like chances are extremely high that he's a religious person um, because he's a very conservative person. He's very like stubborn and like closed minded to change. And that's just sort of the stereotype of like the wasps of this time, the white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestants. That's what it is. Yeah. And I think it essentially is Don trying to capitalize on what this guy believes in in order to seduce him because he even compares it to seduction later and he's basically just saying that like i can't get you to believe in something because you already believe in like a higher power you are a believer you're not and i think it's the culmination of one of don's arcs in this season we're starting to see him apply all of this work and effort he's put into understanding you know jewish people the babylon stuff um the things that he's been getting from like picking up on from rachel and all of that and it's one of the i think beauties of the show is that it can have threads like that that might not be immediately obvious at first but are such an underpinning of his character that it feels he feels like he's growing and sort of declining at the same time does that make any sense or do i sound hysterical no i think that gets to what i wanted to say and i think you said much better than i would have i think mike disagrees no i no i i I definitely agree with what you're saying i think i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense i don't think i picked up on that right in the scene i just took it as maybe an expression also like i work in sales and Walkaway deals are very, very powerful. I've done it myself where you, you have this power dynamic where the buyer thinks like they have all the power and you know you want them so much. So then you being saying you're it's not worth it, I'll walk away. Um, they have to sell to you. Exactly. As the office taught us. Exactly. And but but that makes me think of what we're gonna get later. Uh, like just like a play on it with what we're gonna see later with with Don and Mitch, um, mm-hmm. but I I think your read is also pretty good. And what I heard you say is that religious people are closed minded, so you can. Have- <laughs> That's all you heard. You were just like, well, John, <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> the new Pixar theory. <laughs> yeah, it starts at the cross. Um, 
So yeah, yeah. And, and I think it is powerful what Don's saying. He's like, there is logic to it. He's not just appealing to the guy's sort of like spirituality or supposed so. He's saying, it's like, we've tried your plan and you're number four. I think that's when, like the real moment where he's like starting to get this guy's attention. Um, but I love what he says here. He's like, every woman wants choices, but in the end, none wants to be one in a box of a hundred. You're giving every girl who wears your lipstick the gift of total ownership. And I think that that's just, uh, mm. it's a great part of this episode. It's a great summing up of like Don's philosophy on the world of like him wanting to own who he is being able, he wants to have that choice. He doesn't want who he is to be integral, integral to who he is and something he can't change because he's a, he's a man who reinvented himself, who went to New York city and decided he didn't want to be Dick Whitman. He wanted to be Don Draper. So when Beer Cooper looks at him, it's just like, I know what kind of person you are and it's immovable. It's a stone. Don freaks out because he's like, no, I wear this mask. And if I want to be somebody else, I can, if I want to go over to Paris with Midge and be a completely different person, I can, no one can like settle me is essentially what Don is thinking, but not able to sort of, he doesn't have words for it. I don't know who I'm ranting to. You guys aren't even like antagonistic and I'm like yelling. Yeah. No, I think think that's all, that's all fair. I think it's an accurate read. Oh, where you Wait, where you ranting? I I I saw the book in your lap. I thought you were just reading a page from this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Again, this isn't even in the book. I think, like, we should say so. Like, people don't think that we're just like spouting, but like the book, the book kind of mentions. We, I think, we've referenced the book every time it's been specific to that, right? Well, um, I try to at least ref. If it's something yeah, I pull yeah. directly from the book, I try to make sure I reference it. Are you, John? I think the, are you asking me not to discredit you by making jokes about the book? No, I actually think they're pretty funny, but I do want to be clear about what MZS is saying so that people know what to expect in the book. I want I want that to be like you should read it because we're not we're not really like getting too deep into what his argument or his read of this episode is. He he favors it way more on the side of like the underclass people, the mm-hmm. racial politics and yeah. how, all that stuff goes. He goes way deeper on that. It's not something I ever really built out of this episode. I think it's like one element and I was actually kind of surprised reading that um, excerpt in like how that was his main sort of takeaway. I it's, think because it, it wasn't really mine. My weirdest takeaway was when I was reading it is when he says that white people were better than everybody else. But again, that's what <laughs> Please, I read in the book. And we gotta because not everybody knows Mike Overholse, uh, his brand of sarcasm <laughs> does not say that. I literally uh, started this episode talking about how I've never even heard of this book or read it. So. <laughs> Well, we'll, we'll have so to hope far. people aren't skipping around. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I would recommend it if you get a chance to read it, Mike. I, w- I would have read it if you would have invited me to be part of the club. <laughs> All right, Betty. Well, you're invited now, bud. If I can't get you to believe in Jesus, then I can't get you to believe in Mike. <laughs> All right. All right. So uh, where are we? All right. So the uh the men leave the 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 meeting they're successful they're laughing they're having fun and there's this crushing moment where they pass peggy and go right into don's office and he you know she's just sort of like hearing them revel and like like that it was her idea you know um mzs says this in the book i think where he's just sort of saying like the the gender discrimination of the time is like so apparent in this moment and how you know she's just sort of like she doesn't know anything about what happened she doesn't know how the meeting went she is just left high and dry. She hasn't even seen mm. the work as we see uh, are about to see. She sees it for the first time through them and she had no say whatsoever on anything. 
And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, it's a huge victory for her. They invite her in and they're like, Peggy ice, you know, and it's very dramatic, mm-hmm. but the, she comes in and they let her drink with her, but it's such a power dynamic. It's very, very sketchy. But it's also like, I mean, an uplifting moment because there, there is something like your heart does kind of sink when they close the door on her yet again, I guess, uh, you know, like, like you said, she did the, the heavy lifting. She's the reason why they had success. They just close it and then it holds long enough that you think they might cut and just be like, that's it. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Another example of workplace sexism. But then the door opens and it's like, whoa, she's invited in. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 a sort of pitiful uh, way of like inviting her in. You know, it's like it's not really she's hush, probably hush, where she was like, oh, am I going to get fucked again? Like, yeah. Mm. But you're right. That, I mean, it is another reference to a door, though. I, I see what you're saying in the beginning. It's OK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this it, that like is vampires. something I kind of took from uh, Matt or Slice, but I, I am expanding upon it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's just interesting how, you know, doors play a big factor in this episode. They really do. Um, and, you know, there there are clearly limits to like because Peggy Peggy is somebody who is politely trying to climb the lap. She is trying to do more. She's trying to express herself and she has that moment where she's just like, can I keep it? You know, like she's, she's put a little bit of a Glenn Bishop, you know, she's like, you won't even miss it. <laughs> like, um, but no, they, they don't go for it. So yeah. All right. So, uh, Peggy in celebration decides, Hey, you know what? I'm going to maybe, maybe start my own party. Why should I wait around? Uh, mm-hmm. she decides, she tells the switchboard operators and next thing you know, they're planning a, a party at PJ Clark's. This is also the part where Lois has her infamous series defining line about the bowling team. <laughs> where is right. that spinoff where like Lois is like bowling with like the ad executives of Sterling Cooper? Well, you really yeah, love that line. Second reference. It's really to great. <laughs> it's the bowling team. <laughs> you know, Perfect. something, since we're talking about the switchboard operators, I never really took into account the irony that the one actress uh, that plays Flo went into like one of the biggest marketing campaigns uh, of the last few years, you know, after doing this show, just something that just didn't cross my mind until now. She's no E-Trade baby. Oh man. <laughs> and she's still doing the commercials, right? They haven't slowed down with her at all. You know what the irony is now, the greater irony is, you know, who's in those ads with her. It's who? Who is it? Will? John Hamm. John Ham. It is John Ham. You okay. dirty dog. It is. And it's like total different power dynamic. He like right. he asked her in the in the latest one. I don't know if we're even allowed to talk about it. We're gonna get sued by Progressive. Yes. Sure. He's like, I don't think it's, it's like, not a spoiler. He's like, I mean, he's, like, he's like, do you Barbara. remember me? And she's like, oh yeah, mildly successful actor trying to make it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Recently Emmy nominated for a commercial. For reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, wow. I still can't believe I'm connected to John Hammond in some like very weird way. Well, I don't know how much we're allowed to talk about. I'm not that, nothing, but... nothing at all. Moving on. Okay. John PJ John. <laughs> um, oh, no, but we didn't, uh, we didn't get to the part where uh, Peggy goes to oh, uh, yeah. the guys. Joan? Oh, I thought you thought when she like. Oh, yeah. Joan, Joan has her like, oh, glad to see your work has suffered for a reason. <laughs> But okay, like, John. Peggy has the upper hand for the you know the first time. Like she kind of uh, undermines Joan, who was previously her mentor for seven. Joan was episodes. waiting for her to fail. Like she was waiting for Peggy to fail and then come running to her. 
um, because they are going to, down totally different paths right now. And Joan is frankly hurt by it. She's losing who she thought would be her mentee, you know? And I think it's it's something we already talked about in a previous episode. My my theory for like why she feels hurt in this. And people usually take it as jealousy, and I don't think it is at all. I think what Pete feels is jealousy. Um, and also like a threat to, you know, what turns them on. Um, but Joan, I think, sees it as like a betrayal. Uh, she sees it as sort of like, you were my like little sister and now you're, you know, going off and doing this whole thing. Watch the bear on FX. You were the chosen one, Anakin. I wouldn't go that far. She's not Darth Vader. Gosh. I know. Um, but yeah, so she, you know, she kind of invites the boys out. Um, and then we have this like, quick thing where Harry is just like, when will women stop asking for things? And you get like a little hint that something's going on with Harry. Uh, he's uh, not super happy with what's going on uh, with his home life. And we also get another wrinkle in the whole sort of like, Ken doesn't like to, you know, Ken's a published author, Paul's ribbing him. Um, and Ken is just sort of like, oh, I don't like to limit my words so much. And as somebody who like does advertising writing and novel writing, I think, I think Ken is kind of spot on there. So um, yeah. And then also, Peggy, she gets, we can give her this, but she gets a little cringy when she's just like toodaloo. And she like, does her like little, like she's so happy. Like, how could you hate on her? You know? Oh, the little like uh kick flip or whatever. Yeah. Like the little like the kick flip. No, she doesn't. Like, grab I, a wish, I wish. That'd be so fucking sick. She's like, those Later are losers. Yeah. Kick flip. See you at PJ Clark's bro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I meant to say, uh, she does a little like skip, which is very cute. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's a little right. kid named Tony Hawk is in the crowd. Yeah, that's <laughs> that kid, Tony Hawk. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> um, Check that out. I'm gonna be the Lord of Dogtown. No oh, man. Well, now you're mixing up your skateboard things. I think, but yeah, I'm um, lost at this point. Every skateboard is uh, the same. Um, maybe so. Lois. Well, that, that that I feel like Mike's really going verging into slander at this point in this episode. I have to say. So. Lois uh, tries to invite Sal, and he's like, I'll be there. Yeah. And, but instead, Sal goes off to meet Elliot, uh, the executive that they had had, had at the Belgian pitch, the younger one. And so they're sharing drinks at the Roosevelt Hotel. They have a fun little conversation about the wonder of New York City, all of its possibilities. And I love the writing of this line. He's so enthusiastic. And man, I, I get speaking of spinoffs, but uh, eventually, you know, it starts to turn, you know, you, you, you see clearly. There's something going on. There's a little bit of flirtation. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of like, hmm, is this going to go somewhere between these two guys? Uh, a lot of sexual chemistry. And so eventually he's like, you know, maybe we could, uh, you know, we got to go eat something, right? And then we'll go mm-hmm. ahead and resolve this. So basically they go, they're at this table. I think they've just had drinks. Uh, I don't know if it's implied that they ate too, but he said he would eat. And he's like, you know what, Sal? You want to see the view from my room? Like he's putting on the moves and he's smooth as yeah. hell. But mm-hmm. Sal doesn't want to do it. I mean, Sal kind of mentions, I mean, he wants to do it, but he refuses to. And he's essentially, you know, at one point he's saying, it's like, you know, he misinterprets the question of like, what do you want to do as sort of like, I want to maybe break off with one of the writers and, you know, start a design focus shop. Um, and he's like, no, about the view from my bedroom. And, you know, he, it's sort of revealed here that Sal's a virgin. He's never really acted upon his urges to be with men. And Elliot kind of, you know, gives him some like, you know, encouragement of like, I'll show you, you know, um, you know, this is an episode called the hobo code, right? 
And there's all kinds of codes throughout this episode. And this is one of them, the code of like grabbing the class. It's something that Sal recognizes, you know, because this is a time and place where it's extremely risky, extremely risky for men to, for gay men to hook up in New York, because even if you have that sexual tension, um, you can be outed. The other person can be repressed and, you know, betray you and, there are all kinds of like codes and stuff to keep themselves safe, which mimics the hobo code that we kind of get later in terms of like the people who live on the rails that live an avant-garde lifestyle. Um, it's just a sad scene. It's really sad, um, really sad mm-hmm. for Sal and you know the rejection he gives to Elliot when there's a clear opportunity here for a connection. Yeah, I mean, especially because uh, as you were alluding to that scene with them at the bar is probably the first time and maybe one of the few times. Uh, we actually get to see Sal like with his guard down where, you know, kind of similar yeah. to Don. See, he's always have like Don, you know, very rarely can kind of like be his regular Dick Whitman, Dick Whitman self. But, you know, the, as we've kind of mentioned, like there are times where that guy comes out, you know, like like with his uh, relation is like affairs with uh, Midge and different points. Like you can kind of see it. And with this scene, like you finally get to see like the real Sal. Like he's you know, flirtatious, but he's like open. He's even kind of vulnerable. And, you know, like he's someone who's usually like the first one to say the the wittiest kind of smartest line. He's a little tongue tied and bashful. And yeah, it's like very charming, lighthearted scene. And then, you know, you're thinking like, yeah, maybe things are going to finally work out for dear old Sal. And then, you know, they don't. It also made me sad. Like just it's it's a sad scene on itself. But then when you compare exactly what you're saying, John, comparing learning that code to Dick learning the hobo code, it's really sad that it's, you know, a child Dick Whitman learning this code. And Sal is this, you know, I mean, actually, I don't know how old he's supposed to be in the show. I would guess late 20s, early 30s. Sal? Yeah. I think he's like in his 30s. Yeah. Late 30s. Well, yeah. I was doing the whole actor thing pushing. where. I was in the whole actor thing where the actor looks older than the character is supposed to be, but he's this older man and he's uh, now just he's learning. A, he's the, the art code. director, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I, I figured Sal was the same age, if not older, than Don. The actor himself is Brian uh, Batts, um, who I don't know if you guys recognize him from any other um, shows that he's been in. I think that, or any, I don't know if I've well, any I think a lot either. of like theater, mostly. Um, I'm not as aware. Um, but I do know that he originally like auditioned for Mad Men and in 2005 and wasn't going to do it. Um, I think they might, I forget, I think they had him for like another part, but eventually they got him on when they did the show later than uh, they had originally planned. So, but he's an older guy. I mean, he's like in his, uh, right now he's in like his 60s. So I think when they were filming this, he was in his 40s. Uh, well, he's 59, but yeah, he's, uh, he would be older than uh, John Hamm by at least a decent amount. And it's not played that way, right? Like it's played like, you know, he, you know, he's like his boss, you know, because I, I, the uh, I was just listening to our episode that just came out, uh, New Amsterdam, and he has a whole thing. I was like, we can throw this artwork artwork away in a second, and Sal's just like, huh, you know, like a little like, uh. yeah. So yeah, very sad scene. But then we go to PJ Clark's, uh, which is a real bar uh, in New York City. Uh, I think it's still operating to this day. And uh, the Sterling Cooper gang is celebrating, drinking. They're doing the cha-cha. Super fun. Uh, Joan and Lois are gossiping. And Joan is making remarks about Peggy's weight. Uh, So she has visibly gained some weight since the beginning of the season. And Joan is kind of being catty and mean about it. And it's kind of like, you know, be nice. Stop bullying. Uh, But she doesn't. 
Uh, Lois is clearly waiting for Sal to show up. He doesn't. How sad. He's with Elliot, and this is all watched for Lois. And eventually, uh, we see the twist, or we hear the twist come on. Uh, Chubby Checkers, a twist, which came out in 1960. Uh, the ladies go wild. They're like, whoa, you know, they love the twist. Uh, we see Harry invites Hildy, uh, Pete's secretary, to dance. Um, and we get a bunch of, like, we, we kind of see them in the background. And so it's kind of something to remark on when you see that Harry is, like, dissatisfied with his marriage. And then he's, like, dancing with another woman um, very flirtatiously in this moment. Uh, and then Peggy, she sees Pete kind of sitting alone. He's been miserable this whole time. He clearly didn't want to come. And she tries to get him to dance with her. And he says, no. He's like, I don't like you like this. He doesn't say no, but he rejects her. And he's like, I don't like you like this. And I think we've kind of touched on this already. What he doesn't like her as is somebody who is fun, making plans, celebrating, being self-sufficient. Uh, and successful and, you know, yeah. leading the office, you know, kind of doing the thing that he's wanted basically for all of his time in the office, however short at this point. He's a little, he's a bit of a Michael Scott to bring up their office again. You know, he couldn't get a bunch of people to go hang out at PJ Clark's. Uh, and I think it hurt what he's miserable about, especially is that like he goes to a work to escape the misery he feels at home, but he's feeling it at work too. Um, and for good reason, because he's very, very awful to his coworkers. And isn't um, Mike, it, isn't it oh, the timeline of the day too? Like that was the morning they fucked. And so he's feeling all this power. I think this is the first episode where it's only one. Yeah. Or no, there was one other. The pilot was over a course of one day, right? Mm -hmm. I think. Um, like a day and a half, maybe. And this one kind of is. It's like a day and then immediately well, the morning after. It's a day and then there's a flashback, which was like two days or that three doesn't count days. Will yeah. Ashton, it? This okay. episode takes the course of 10 plus years. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 10 years how old do you think john's is quit asking me about ages <laughs> um, yeah but i was gonna say i mean before this uh heartbreaking moment with uh with peggy and pete peggy was having a hell of a day she got yeah laid. she's dancing with freddie you know and Set dancing the pitch got off pretty well but then she, it ends with her crying that's her but it's her party she'll cry if she wants mm. to there you go but I think that's the moment where she kind of figures out the attraction that she has with Pete would never work. I think this is this is the mark of like her essentially being like, you know what? It's never going to work out, this guy. And happy that happened for her because she can do so much better. It's ridiculous. So, yeah. Uh, did you have yeah. one more thing, Will? Don't want to stop you. Uh, well, now it's kind of dumb because we're going to highlight it. But I was like, call Sufan Stevens because she should have known better. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Sufjan Stevens because uh, that episode of The Bear that I told you about okay, uh, yeah. prominently plays uh, Chicago and it's really oh, good yeah. in like one episode it's oh hell yeah Will you gotta watch this show Mike have you seen The Bear? Good. of course I've seen The Bear I worked in a restaurant everybody I worked with has texted me about that damn show I mean I've worked so in a restaurant too good. yeah I've, I've heard it's good yeah um, we'll, we'll have to do once we're done with Mad Men we can do The Bear How we'll do that? The Mad Bear Men yeah um why is the bear talking <laughs> all right so then so we... proud of that joke john why Damn is the you. bear talking <laughs> i just love that line um uh, no the, the line is i just find it odd that the bear is talking <laughs> anyway so negroupies next we you get think to... that's a funny joke let me know in the comments again calling all the <laughs> negroupies we go to uh 
very interesting, a very interesting scene of the episode, the last major scene, uh, which, you know, this has been interstitial, but I've been doing this in chunks just to make it easier because otherwise we'd be going like back and forth, back and forth. But uh, anyway, so Don uh, goes to Midge's apartment. There are a bunch of people already there, a bunch of beatniks and hipsters and, you know, ne'er do wells. Uh, Roy Hazlitt, uh, great last name, of course. Uh, he makes his return. I don't think we've seen him since uh, Babylon, I want to say. And so we get back to our, you know, Devil's Triangle. And uh, I really did think in this episode, you know, it's like, I always, I feel like they're two conversations away from having a threesome. Mm. Right? Which would have just been so sad for Sal. That Sal can't live the life he wants to live, but fucking Don gets everything. Uh, Roy would be down. Roy immediately mm. would be like, yeah, man, let's do it. You know, he just would. Uh, yeah. But anyway, Don pulls Midge aside and it's just like, pack a bag. You know, mm-hmm. he takes the check out. It's like, we're going to Paris. We're going to get breakfast in Versailles. He wants to run. He wants to get out. But she's sort of like, I have plans. You know, they're going to get high and listen to Mike. I mean, Miles. And uh, Don is like, triangle? fine, okay. Huh? It's a devil's triangle or like the devil's lettuce. There you go. You knew what I was doing from the start. Mm. Um, and then Don smokes marijuana for the first time. Is it, it, I mean, is it? I, I presumed it was his first time, but is there anything yeah. that they say that directly? I mean, yeah, yeah, because they say um, the Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah, yeah, they're they're just like, how does it feel? He's just like, I feel mm. like Dorothy. So they, they are they are I'm, framing it, they're yeah. writing it implicitly, like he's never done it. And I don't think yeah, they I, would be that overt about it, you know? Did you? That makes sense. Yeah. Did you, if you think uh, in that scene though? Think back to Joan and Roger, the episode before though. I mean pretty similar of hey let's go do this different reasonings of why they can't go but i just thought that was interesting i'll throw that in there hey, what do you mean don, the- well, don don asking her to go to paris and her basically saying no just made me think oh of, and then like what roger and joan in the last episode exactly. yeah, yeah 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 i forgot about that that's a good point um men trying to control women when, when will they learn when will we learn um okay so then Don goes to the bathroom and looks at himself in the mirror. Gets so um, high, he remembers one of the most pivotal moments of his childhood. <laughs> but I think, as one I think it makes sense, right? Weed, I guess. Because, well, Mike, I think, touched on this a lot. You know, right. this idea, and you said it too, Will. Like, mm-hmm. He feels like an outsider. Yes. But he considers himself an honorary, you know? Mm-hmm. He, he sees these beatniks, and he's so at odds with himself. There's a line Pete says earlier in the episode where he's just like, I have all these things going on in my head. I think Don does, too. I think he just sort of sees himself as like, I should be able to code switch. You know, he wouldn't have the language for that. But he's like, I should be able to fit in with these guys. But he also resents them because he reinvented himself. Mm-hmm. He decided he wasn't going to be like going to go down the same path that his family was going down. Mm-hmm. He ran away to the military, you know? He he ran away from like his identity as Dick Whitman and he decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be this ad executive guy. I'm going to make tons of money. And Mm -hmm. now he's being judged for it and he can't reconcile that. And I think what hurts him even more is that scene. And I know we got to talk about the flashback, but that, ah, that part where he takes a picture of Midge and Roy and it kind of mirrors marriage of Figaro uh, episode three, where he has the camera and he sees that couple having like a tender, honest, genuine kiss and he knows what love is. That's I, th- I think specifically what he's referencing, you know, where he's just like, I've seen, I, I do these pictures where people look like they need to be in love. I know what it looks like. And he even says to Midge, he's like, you're breaking my heart. He plays it off. But clearly he actually is brokenhearted in a sort of like self-interested way, if that makes sense. Behind every JK, there's a little bit of truth. 
to be able to fully wear the mask that Don wears, to be able to motivate himself over those years to reinvent himself, you have to fuel yourself by judging the type of life you could have had, so that beatnik life. And so the fact then that he is being judged by those people that he himself looks down upon and thinks, well, I could do what you can do, but you can't do what I can do. Is also- Don Bootstraps Draper, yeah. Yeah. Make something of yourself. He's talking to himself. Mm -hmm. He's talking to his younger self Mm -hmm. that he sees in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, there is something to be said, though, about like before that happens, he's kind of like removing the layers. Like he takes the hat off. He takes the jacket off. His tie gets loosened. He is trying to kind of like take those layers off and like be with them. But there is like, you know, he still has the tie on, even though it's loose. He still has like he's still guarded in some even when he's trying to loosen up, but he can't fully. He can't fully do it. And we've seen him be like that with Mitch, right? We've seen him be Dick Whitman with her, as it's implied. But he has a harder time doing it with more than, like, with witnesses, you know? The the whole thing where he kisses her and everybody's clapping. That has to rankle him a little bit. Is that... You know, this idea of it, yeah. Is that screenplay or direction, you think, of, you know, this... Because it is such an important, I think, really powerful bit that he leaves the tie on, but a little bit loose. Like it's such a great visual, mm. but is that screenplay level? I or? bet it, it's probably a directing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Direction. But I mean, it could have been in the script. I don't know. I didn't read the script. Who directed this episode, John? It was um, uh, Phil Abraham. Phil directed. Abraham. He's yeah. primarily the cinematographer for like, like the first three episodes, at least he shot. Yes. But he, he was also a main cinematographer for the Sopranos. And he directed like one or two episodes of that show as well. So, Chris Provenzano uh, wrote it. And my my guess, if I had to guess, I would say that it was probably part of the script that at one point he like takes off his hat. like, But it probably wasn't drawn attention to. I think Abraham is probably the one who made that a more intentional visual sort of linger. Um, I, just love the, I just love the choice. Yeah, it's great. Um, and then we do, we, we haven't talked about the flashback yet, but yeah, we, we see young Dick Whitman. Um, he's outside the farmhouse. Uh, we meet his father first for the first time, Archibald, Whitman. I wonder if I can... Oh, yeah. Joseph Culp is the actor who plays him. Uh, we see his mother again. We saw his mother uh, in a previous episode, uh, but I don't I don't remember what Stepmother. the uh, his name is. Stepmother, excuse me. Um, she ain't my mother. Um, didn't you hear? Horror <laughs> child. But yeah, so he, uh, he he's uh, digging a hole as a hobo comes by. And is like very articulate. And if it isn't Father Phil from The Sopranos, and I knew Will mm. was gonna like, I, I I read the message in my head before Will sent it. I'm just mm. like, Father Phil. <laughs> well, I said, yeah, Father Phil has uh, hit some hard times, which he has. You know, <laughs> he, he's a a dang bomb in this episode. I mean, he was he was kind of a scuttlebutt in uh, The Sopranos in some in some scenes, but he's a full out bum this episode but uh and so i guess he's like kind of a bum by choice we find out later like he yeah yeah uh, he's a bit of a jack kerouac um so the actor is paul schultz by the way and it's it's kind of like the 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 1950s i think saw a lot of this like the post-war people who couldn't quite fit into the american dream you know aesthetic and framework you know he he had the job he had the mortgage as he mentions um there's even the whole scene where it's just like communists they don't have souls they can't be saved or they have souls but they can't be saved or whatever and um there's this idea that like as a hobo it's expected that that's for him he couldn't be tied down to those things he says that outright 
Uh, but he's he's somebody who rides the rails. Uh, he's somebody who just has all this existential dread in him because for so many reasons. And, and it's something that I like about this episode that they don't try to, you know, analyze him too deeply. They let it be vague enough so you can read a lot into what he means by certain things. But yeah, I mean, bottom line, he comes by and, is, you know, asks for a meal. And then it's clear from the start that Don's dad is a very selfish um disinterested person uh very he's a, a bit of like an ayn rand kind of main character honestly uh where he he wouldn't do something for somebody else and so i think don recognizes that in himself um i don't think that he consciously knows what atlas shrugged is about and makes that connection when bert um is sort of talking about all this stuff but i do think the show wants you to make that connection even though it's something we know that don doesn't um since i think it's implied that he's unaware of objectivism i, I I'm seeing nods. Uh, I'm not seeing disagreements on yeah. that. No, I, I was going to say, true. I think uh, I think the dad's name is Archibald and the mom is Abigail, just for uh, just for reference sake. I just I don't remember the name of the uh, the actress for Abigail. Oh, OK. Oh, I see it here. Bryn Horrocks. But anyway. Wow. So he really um, is the son of a whore. Oh, wait, no, that's no. That's not I, was, I was waiting for that. I was like, OK, I said that. And then here we go. I probably pronounced it wrong. Um. So even though his dad is like, you know, we ain't Christians no more around here. Um, Abigail Whitman is like, that ain't true. That ain't true. You're going to stay with us. You're going to eat with us. But I'm going to have to boil those clothes. Or you're going to sit at my table. You know, it's very, you know, we're, we're in the thick of the well, depression. That's for sure. Religions comes up again, you know, kind of going that's back right. to an earlier talking point. Yeah. You see it as like an ideal of sorts for Don, right? Because he's a wasp. You know, but he doesn't take sides. He doesn't when it comes to political issues, as we've seen social issues, he's very indifferent. He wears these things as identities and hats. Um, he doesn't wear them as like convictions. And again, that's another layer, I think, to the whole sort of like you either believe in you or you don't. And I think Don is preaching as a non-believer himself in a lot of ways, uh, especially like when you have that part where Roy is just like you invent want, you know, you make the lie. And I think that resonates kind of deep with Don because he does like he creates this idea of like religion will save your soul when he doesn't believe it himself. He's like this weird half measure between um, I actually he's more like his mother in some ways than his like stepmother than his dad, because she sort of puts up this front of being like, we are Christians, like we will be nice. But when it comes down to it, she still is a very hateful person is my read. Yeah, yeah I mean, also like, I mean. Mm-hmm. Good. Oh, I was also just going to say, you know, there's never been a snake oil salesman who's actually believed in their own product, right? Mm. Well said. Well said. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, <laughs> well I don't know. I mean, I was just going to talk. I mean, like, well, he has a line where he's just like, we live in a indifferent world. And I feel like that's more Archibald than Abigail. But I think, I think what he mix, says, yeah, the, yes. the universe is indifferent. But what do you, right. do you think he really believes that, though? Um,. Yes and no. I think I think there's a part of him that has to believe that to kind of sell his own, you know, like to sell the idea of Don Draper. He kind of has to believe that. I think his heart, he'd rather believe that's not true. But I think there's an idea that like he he needs to believe his own lie in order for the lie to become real, even if it never will be real. I think that I think it's proven out in the fact that he doesn't want to be his father. He doesn't want to be a dishonest man. The hobo explains to young Dick Whitman the hobo's code. And and yeah. one of those th- things being like, this is the mark of a dishonest man. It's the mark that he gives his father because his father is dishonest. He, you know, stiffed the the hobo for his hard work. 
And I think it's telling that like immediately after this flashback, Don goes home, goes to his kid and is like, ask me anything because he just wants the chance to not lie to his son, you know? And the son is just like, why do lightning bugs light up? Like poor kid, like put on the spot. And he's just like, I don't know, but I will never lie to you. And I just imagine as a kid, like what the hell is going on? What is wrong with you? I also imagine him in that scene too, just being like, you fucking idiot. Ask me a better question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the end of the episode, Bobby. <laughs> like, we need to end on something profound. Can't you tell Man. I'm trying to be a character arc right now? Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> the music's playing. The themes are coming together, and you're on lightning bugs. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there something about lightning bugs, guys, that has to do with this episode? I. <laughs> what is, uh, stretch, well, huh? looking it up, uh, the go. light of a firefly is a chemical reaction caused by organic compound. Luciferin in their just like this episode. Mm. That's exactly (laughs) sure. Sorry, (laughs) you know, because I love this episode so much. I looked up, like, I rewatch, like, I went onto YouTube and I rewatched just like just the hobo code scene. And there were so many people in the comments who were like, Wow, this says so much about the hobo that he saw that there was a dishonest man who lived there and he still went in. And I was like, is it, it was it, is it that hard to read or understand that he left the sign? It wasn't already there for him. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. I'm just making sure. Because it was kind of, I've never took it as he read that and went in. Yeah. The, I but took there it was, as he there, marked it. There was like 15 comments like that. <laughs> Interesting. I guess it's possible, but I just, yeah, I assumed the same thing that he did it overnight or he did it whenever. Yeah. Yeah. But because he gave the chalk to Don. So, I guess it's implied he would have done it before then. And he even says, like, but it he kind of implied it was his a dad. It was carved. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, right. Yeah. But he did, I he mean, did kind of say that, like, your dad is a, he's a real son of a bitch. He didn't say that, but he's kind of, mm-hmm. your mother right. will take care of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, I mean, to the, the comments uh, defense, I guess, like, it is kind of hidden behind the bushes. So I guess you could argue that he didn't see the, the logo and that someone else put it there, but. I don't know. I kind of took it as he was like, standing you know, over there, saying. so I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's what well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that, you I, could I read took it, it as, more as like yeah, yeah. You could read it yeah. either way, right? Sure. But the thing is, he expects the dad to do something there, but I think he did mm-hmm. already sort of expect if he did the mark himself, he expected that it was a dishonest man. So mm-hmm. I think uh, he does it afterwards. I think it's supposed to be a suspension of disbelief, like Batman, that. He can carve this, walk away, and be four posts down when Dick runs out to see him. <laughs> or do you think it's some yeah. sort of like like a false memory? Like maybe he saw that later, and he's just conflating the memory with this moment. Well, if that's whoa, whoa. the case, I don't think the episode is trying to make you think that. Right? It's two thousand seven. I, so I just mean we don't have to get yeah. into the unreliable narrator television shows yet. <laughs> like I love, I do love the speech though that the hobo gives to Don uh, to Dick. You know, it's just like that, that whole line, like I've, I've rewatched it too, Mike, where he's just like, you know, he talks about like death came for me and now I sleep, you know, I sleep like a stone and like, it's just, it's so well-written, you know, Schultz knocks it out of the park in the acting. And then also I just, there, there's something to be said of like, you know, what is that? What does he mean by that? The death that came for him. I always took it as like, he was suicidal, uh, suicidal and essentially was like, his life, the anxiety, the depression was like causing him to have like dark thoughts because he mentions like every night he can't sleep. And then that was his way to cope was to run away. 
And I think that, that resonates with Don because that's what he does when he grows up. He runs away. Yeah, I also, I, I think this is a little bit of a reach, but I, I did think like, because you're, you're beginning to see the, the inklings at the beginning of Don Draper's story. And uh, the first thing he asks him there is, do you smoke? Just thought it was interesting since the first episode of Mad Men is so centered around smoking and yeah, Lucky yeah. Strike. Yeah, yeah. Smoke in your eye. And, well, there's the whole thing too where every episode starts with Don falling off the building and the implication being him, you know, killing himself and that being a sign of like running away. This is, I think, an episode that connects that idea of like if, if Don would be to take his own life, it would be because he can't get away for whatever reason. Is, is that Don uh, kill himself or is that Dick Whitman killing himself and falling into a life of being an ad man? You can read it so many different ways, huh? Because that's that's literally what happens, right? But is that Dick Whitman? Dick Whitman wouldn't wear a suit. Anyway. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but there is something, yeah, I mean, because like with his whole Paris uh, escapade, he's willing to throw his life away at a moment's notice just to have that kind of spontaneity and kind of have control back in his life. Yeah. So I think that's true of Dick and I think that's true of Don. So there you go. There you go, indeed. And uh, she doesn't want to go with him. And... Uh, even though like he knows that he she loves um this Roy guy and yet he tries to mark her, you know, and he literally takes the check and gives it to her, puts it on her, tries to mark his woman and tells her to buy a car. And I wonder if that has something to do with like him watching his dad tinker with the car. I don't know if that's like part of it, um, why he has that on his mind. But I think also the idea of like get out of the village, you know make something of yourself or whatever he wants to say. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad moment for Don. Um, but he kind of like struts, you know, a little bit of like, they're like, well, you can't go like the, there are police there. There, you know, there was like a domestic disturbance. He's like, you can't. And then that's another subtle, but not subtle sort of hint at like, they are white like him, except for one person there, but they are a lower, you know, they're an under class in the sense that he can do things that they can't he can put on the don draper mask literally put the clothes back on and he can navigate a world of power that they can't mm. and yet but that, i think that that is obviously true but i also think there is something to be said about like a lot of those beatniks kind of chose that life as well kind of similar to That's the true. hobo you know yeah. they, they there is kind of a parallel there where they i mean you, we don't know enough about them though for sure but a lot of those folks like they they wanted to have that kind of lived in experience like they're rejecting the, the comfort of their previous lives. And so and there's something you know. to be said about the fact that Don doesn't know that if, you know, he, he assumes that they didn't make that choice. He assumes that they're doing it right. because, you know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of similar to his father. He just looks down shit. on them no matter what, but isn't that classism at its core too? always assuming that, you know, people in worse circumstances than you, um, are like, you know, you hear it so many times, like people are homeless because they're lazy uh, you don't have a good job because you're lazy. I mean, it's, it's been mm-hmm. the same thing for years, right? It's, it's upper class classism. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am lazy, but I mean, that's a regardless. <laughs> um, but a dishonest man does not live here. I mean, we're all a little dishonest. Sure. Um, and then the episode ends with a mirroring of the, one of the first parts of the episode where Don walks in shot from the back, um, goes over to Peggy goes into his office, closes the door. You just hear tons of ringing. And there we see the mark of a dishonest man, quite literally, quite in our faces, Don Draper. And that is his mark because that's not his name. But 
in some ways, isn't that who he really is? Because he decided it's so. Interesting note to end on. Yeah, I love the and comments then, this show has on identity. Like, are we who we are because of our actions? Are we who we are born? You're you're seeing so many different characters struggling with. It's like the ship, the ship of Theseus thing, but with people. Yeah. It's like if you reinvent yourself and you like deconstruct yourself and rebuild yourself, are you the same person being dishonest? Or are you the person that you want to be? I mean, yeah. And also, I mean, just kind of going back to the idea of advertising is like, if you sell the lie convincing enough, does it become true? Yeah. Even when it never was true. And then you buy the product and you actually are happy. Right. So is that, yeah. Is that still bad? But at the same time, though, Don is never happy. So what is he getting out of it? If he is, if getting you tell people, listen to Mad Men, men, you'll enjoy sure. it. And then they enjoy Maybe it. They'll make people happy. We invented know. want. Sure. We're for, you know, we're for them, not us. Sure. I'm here for the groupies and then the groupies only. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's the end of the episode. And uh, there are so many other things we could have gotten into. We didn't talk about Sal's mom enough. Um, there's an interesting moment between Peggy and Don, that moment where her blouse is like ripped. I forgot to mention where Don is, you know, she kind of mentions the keeping a spare kind of thing, which he does, of course. Uh, she knows about his affairs. Uh, and uh, there was there was a whole thing where I, I found out that um, this is one of the first episodes where they shot Sterling Cooper in L.A. And this is a shot where... Uh, they filmed the whole thing at the barn down the road from the Disney ranch, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, I also read that uh, Dick Whitman's house is uh, Shroot Farms. <laughs> that's real. Not- Shroot Farms is probably be like way more fun, wouldn't it? That's real. It's the actual, it's a little, the same location. Same location. Are you asking me, would it be I more fun be to live on a farm in the depression era with lost <laughs> parents being told you're a whore child or like being the king <laughs> Of the Beat Kingdom? Yeah, John. I think that'd yeah, be a little one? bit more fucking fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. But your life is going to get canceled because, uh, you know, the farm got canceled or they didn't even make that show. You know, we had to end with the office. We brought it up three times. I'm so glad they didn't make that. I know it, we're trying to wrap up same, an episode, same. but that would have been so bad. Oh, That's the, all I had. Though. I did, was there anything else you guys had, though, for this episode? Have you guys ever had sex in the office? No, nope. of you. <laughs> yeah, you have. You probably oh, have man. multiple times, huh? Just once. I'm a dishonest man. I don't know if, if you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't. We can't believe a word you say. Next episode is going to be shoot, uh, which is a big Betty episode, and a lot of people really like this episode. I definitely like it. It's one of those I episodes like- where I, I I do want to kind of watch it, and you know, because rewatching every time I re- we wa- uh, rewatch the show. I usually binge it. And so a lot of them blur together for me, but like we've mentioned this before, like doing it step-by-step has been a little bit easier for me to differentiate the quality of these episodes. So I'm kind of curious where this lands. I mean, for me, when I first watched this season, shoot was a top three episode for me. I don't know if that's going to be the case now, but we'll find it out soon. Yeah. What was the other, what were the other two in your top three? Red in the face and what else? Um, I don't know if red in the face, which one was red in the face? I thought right in the, the last one we did, Chip and Dip. Oh, yeah. I think it might have been that one uh, and the the pilot. I think those might have been my three favorites. Wow, not, not the election been, episode? The election one? Which one was that? You'll see. Yeah, okay. I, I honestly, I don't love a lot of the episodes after shoot. 
Um, I think they're good, but they're not my favorites. My favorites are probably oh, Marriage Chuck. of Figaro right now. Marriage of Figaro, uh, Babylon. Wait, 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 wait. John, quit trying to push your fucking idea of ranking episodes. We'll do it later. <laughs> the All right, wow, you really just I'll try to be us. sneaky. You just sold us. <laughs> you made us think. You asked the question just so you could then do it. I invent want. Wow. <laughs> you really do this for a living, make huh? the lie. <laughs> oh, man. See you all Real the next time. Yeah. Bye, everybody. See ya.